can be seated. Kids, you are dismissed for Sunday school. We have our middle school, high school class today. I heard the teacher's fantastic. <laughs> Brigitte's shaking her head no. <laughs> Guys, we're gonna uh, we're gonna be finish up the book of Mark uh, in the next few weeks. But today, I want to take a break and talk in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter seven specifically. The title of my sermon is called "Living Under Compassionate Authority." Now, when you hear that, you go, "That sounds a little strange," but we're gonna talk about it in just a minute. But before we talk about that. Um, I'm going to pray, and if you would like, uh, the root of my prayer will be in Proverbs 16. So if you want, you can open up to Proverbs 16, and that'll be our opening prayer before we go into God's Word. Let's bow our heads. The preparation of the heart belongs to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Father, I just pray, much of today is, is planned in the hearts of men. We prepare worship, we prepare people in the sound room, Lord, we prepare Sunday school sermons, all these things, Lord, but God, it is all in hopes of desire that you will guide our paths. And Lord, lead us to those deep waters, Lord, where we may drink and we may be replenished and refreshed, recalibrated, refocused. And may we rejoice in you, Lord. We thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, so we're going to be talking about this idea of um, compassionate authority now, if you're old school like me, how many people know who John Mellencamp is? Okay, now years ago, his name wasn't just John Mellencamp. What was it? Johnny, John, Johnny Cougar Mellencamp. That cougar got thrown in there. And that was really cool when he was like, you know, 20, 25, 28. 
But now that he's like in his 70s, it's weird to think Cougar. So he just goes by John Mellencamp. And he wrote a song called The Authority Song. And the chorus of that song goes what? I fight authority and what? Authority always wins. I fight authority and authority always wins. Authority is one of those words that kind of can grind a little bit about on us. We don't like thinking that anyone has authority over us. I remember watching a, 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 a clip on, on YouTube and, and this guy was getting arrested outside his car and this woman said, um, why is this man being arrested? Has he broken the law? And she, the guy said, we pulled him over and we just asked for his ID and the guy won't give his ID. And the woman says to him, do you have your ID? He says, yes. And she goes, why won't you give it to the officer? He says, because I don't want to. And the officer said, thus we will go to jail. <laughs> I fight authority. Authority always wins. Well, today we are going to look at a truly bizarre passage in the Bible. Let me say it again. A truly bizarre passage in the Bible because we're going to look at a passage that does not make sense. See, one thing I've always said is I don't always understand God, but I kind of can read people. But what really tweaks me is when people do things that are very unpeople-like, right? So here is a perfect example today where we're going to look at some people do some unpeople-like things. So open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 1. And we'll start off with our three for the road, number one. Compassion and conviction can coexist. Compassion and conviction can coexist. Let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Of course, we're talking of Jesus. And a certain centurion servant was dear to him and was sick and ready to die. Okay, verse number 2, if you're paying attention, if you're reading, you should go, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about a centurion. What's a centurion? It's a leader in the Roman army. It's a tough guy. It's a guy who's been seasoned in battle. It's a guy who has taken many lives. It's a guy who looks up only to Caesar and serves Caesar. These are the guys that are like the Green Berets of the Roman army. He's a Rambo-type figure. Eddie, do we have that picture? Look at That's Bob White when he was young, right? Look at that. You know, like when we think of like a centurion, you think of this, like this is this tough guy, right? But what does it say about this centurion? He had a servant that was dear to him. What's another word for servant? Slave. He had a slave that was dear to him and was ready to die. Now, I'm going to tell you something. If you're somebody who, for a living, makes people die, you're used to seeing death all the time. You see it all the time. And so the fact that this servant is dying, the centurion could easily have his friends who would say, oh, that's a shame. Go take another one. That's all right. They're here to serve you. They die, they die. It's all right. But this centurion, despite being like a Rambo-type figure, seems to have a soft spot. 
So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him that they come and heal his servant. Okay, now this is another bizarre verse. Wait a minute. Who did the centurion conquer? The Jews. His servant is sick, and he cares. Now he's going to go to the Jews, the people he conquered, and says, hey, listen, I've heard about this Jesus. Now, if you read about Pilate's interactions with the Jews and Pilate's interactions with Jesus, the Romans could care less about what the Jews believe and do. Just pay your taxes, don't cause trouble, because guess what every, guess what every Roman soldier, where do you think they really want to live? Rome. Do you think they really want to be out here in this kind of squalor when they could be walk around and treated like kings in Rome? But no, we're at this outpost with all these Jews. And if it was probably up to them, they would just as soon eradicate all of them. But God's hand is with them, so that never happens. So he goes to the Jews and says, hey, listen, I've heard about Jesus. Now, what do we know about many of the Jewish leaders? What do they feel about Jesus? Lib, how do they feel about him? They're not real crazy about him. So in comes this Roman centurion, and he says, hey, you're friends with that guy Jesus because he's one of you, right? Can you go get him? I need a favor from him. And they're going, great. Sure, we know about Jesus. Well, listen to what happens. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him. Wait a minute, we've got religious rulers now and they're begging Jesus. But why are they begging him? Well, we've got another twist here. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. So now the Jewish people are going to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, this guy who's asking for this is deserving. And he's a Roman centurion. Do you see how many weird things are crossing here? And I think when Jesus sees really weird things crossing, I think Jesus goes, okay, you got my attention. Because all of us, you always talk about how you hate the Romans. Now you're begging me to go help a centurion who's like the chief of the creeps. Okay, let's see what's going on here. Verse 5, so they describe this Roman centurion and say, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Rule number one of a Roman centurion, who do you worship? Caesar. Caesar is God. And whatever Caesar worships, you're going to worship. And instead, this conquering centurion loves the Jewish nation and helped them build a synagogue. Guys, you can't make this stuff up. If this was a movie, people would go, no, 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 this plot is way too hypothetical. Can't happen. But here it is unfolding right in front of Jesus' eyes. He loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. All right, so here, here's the thing. 
So he builds this, but let's make this at home. Compassion and conviction can coexist. A lot of times we don't think they can. But I'm going to tell you that Jesus has a knack of taking things that we think are impossible and somehow intertwining them. Compassion and conviction. John chapter 8, Jesus is at the temple teaching. They bring in a woman caught in adultery. I imagine that this, it says she was caught in the very act of adultery. Most people, when they're having those kind of relationships, don't have many clothes on. This woman was caught in that act. So she's dragged out, I'm guessing with a sheet wrapped around her, and she's pulled to the temple. Everyone's worst nightmare, getting caught in a vulnerable position like that, in a moment of lust, and what do you do? You're dragged to the church. Oh, and by the way, you're going to meet a guy who says he's the son of God. Great. And they drag this woman in, and they say to Jesus, hey, the law, the conviction of the law says that she should be killed. Now, they kind of misquoted because the conviction of the law says they both should be killed. I don't know where the guy went. And so they put Jesus to the test. The first thing Jesus does, expert. He kneels down on the ground, starts doodling on the ground. Why does he do that? People always say, well, I think he's writing the sins of all the people. Listen, if Jesus was writing all the sins, he'd probably call all the angels down. The guys say, we need to clear a big area and start writing. No. He's drawing the attention off the woman. It's the first thing he does. A man who loves will protect and draw unneeded attention off her on him. So he's doodling on the ground. Then he stands up, and what does he say? He doesn't say that they're wrong. He doesn't say that they're right. He says, you know what? Whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone. And then he kneels down, and he's writing this. And of course, the older ones drop their stones and walk away because they know they're sinners. The younger ones, who are always convinced they're righteous, stick around a little bit longer. Then they leave. Then Jesus stands up and turns to the woman and says, where are those who condemn you? She says, they've all gone. See, the interesting thing is, all of the people who were unworthy to throw a stone have left. Who still remains? The one who's worthy to throw a stone. And what does Jesus say? Where are those condemners of you? No one. They've all left. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but what? Leave your life of sin. Compassion and conviction blended beautifully by the master. See, this is the thing. How many people know people who have so much compassion that they get abused? Right? Oh, it's okay, it's okay. Then it happens again to them. And there are people that like, oh my gosh. You know, well, you know, I just think that I'm trying to be, I just want to love them, I just want to care for them. And how many of you know someone that their compassion is allowing them to get abused and you just want to run somebody over with your car? Right? But here's the other side. How many people know someone who will say brutally, truthful, convicting things, but do it without compassion? I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of Christians roaming around doing that. My neighborhood has got all sorts of signs stuck in lawns with people who will tell you what's wrong with this world. But park wrong in my neighborhood? And you'll get cursed out like anything. And I think, how in the world can we have scripture verses over here and in 
effing people out over here. See, you're great at convicting, but you have no compassion. Jesus blends these things perfectly. And I'm going to tell you this, that if you have compassion or you have conviction, you need to ask God to help you to balance them out. Because both of them are traits that God wants us to have. Hey, sometimes we need to say, hey, Stacy, this isn't a good idea for you. This is a conviction. You shouldn't be doing this. But sometimes we need to come alongside and say, what's going on? What's happening in here? And God will help you to blend those things. Ask him and he will help you. And listen, the greatest example, believe it or not, is maybe this centurion. And I don't think anyone in the Bible, if I said to you this morning, hey, listen, tell me somebody who lived by conviction and compassion, I think you guys would have looked for a long time before somebody would say, I think that Roman centurion was pretty good. I don't know. But Jesus certainly is interested in him. Let's keep going. Verse 6. So Jesus went with them. So he's going to go. He's very intrigued. And it says, and when, oh, three for the road, number two. Whose authority do you live under? Whose authority do you live under? Look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. Now, remember we got to think critically here. Who are the first people that he sent to Jesus? The Jews. Who's the second group of people he sent? Who do you think his friends were? Other Romans. Other guys who had probably some kind of role. And here come these guys. And they're walking down the street. And probably all the Jewish people say, oh, geez, here comes these guys. But they're friends with the centurion. And they meet up with Jesus and look what they say. It says, he had already, not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him and said, Lord, I'm sorry, what did he call him? Anyone else's translation say something different? He calls him Lord. A Roman centurion called a Jewish carpenter whom he conquered Lord. The Jews don't even call him that. Can you believe that? Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. So first he comes to him and he says, Lord, I'm not worthy. How many people don't acknowledge him as Lord, but sure think you're worthy? I've, I've told you this story a million times. I've talked with people and they'll say, Eric, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. And I think you're stupid for what you do and I don't believe in any of that stuff. I say, okay. I said, look at it this way. If there's nothing else, I'll die and people will look and say, hey, you know what? He was a pretty good guy. Loved his wife. Nice kids. Crazy dog. But other than that, he's a good guy. I said, that's if there's nothing. I said, that's if I'm wrong. What if you're wrong and you come before the Lord? And every single guy I talk to, I go, well, I'm going to heaven. You're going to heaven. Why? Well, because I'm a good guy. I said, so you deny the Lord your entire life, and then you die, and Jesus goes, thank goodness, we've been waiting for you. How does that work? 
Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. Do you know that even the guys who are friends with the centurion are going to say, you know that you have this position. You're worthy. No, I'm not. I'm not worthy. I am not worthy that you should enter my, under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. So the centurion says, I don't even think I'm worthy to go talk with you. Do you understand that not long after this, people who work under that centurion would be a part of crucifying Jesus? Do you understand how crazy this situation is? That he says, listen, I'm not even worthy to talk to you. I'm not even worthy to have you at my house. But then he says one of the greatest verses in the Bible not spoken by Jesus. For I also am a man placed under authority. What's the key word in that phrase? I think it's also. I think it's also, and let me tell you why. For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Also. Also. Which means what? What does the Roman soldier believe about Jesus? He believes that there is a God to whom Jesus is under direct authority to. In other words, he's saying, I also can relate. I serve under Caesar. You serve under the Heavenly Father. We have something in common. Because guess what? Soldiers do. They follow orders. Go, and they go. Come, and they come. Do this, and they do it. And the Roman centurion says, Jesus, I'm not worthy. All I'm asking you to do is exercise your authority over this situation because I believe you have authority over this situation. How many of you have a situation where you question whether he has authority over it? I know I do. There's things that go on in my life that I go, hey, Lord, I believe you're sovereign, you're in control, you got all this in your hands. Well, I'm not sure what's going on over here. Is it under your sovereignty? Is it under your control? For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me, and saying... To one go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. Do this, and he does it. Now, guys, this next verse, another one that will blow your mind. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled. He marveled. Did you catch that? Jesus marveled. How many times do you read a miracle, and you read after the miracle, what did the people do? They marveled. They worshiped God. They gave praise. We've never seen anything like this. Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the only place I can find in Scripture where it says that Jesus marveled. Jesus marveled at who? Peter? No. John? No. Thomas? No. Paul? No. Roman centurion? Yeah. Marveled at him. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, 
not even in Israel. So Jesus absolutely lays the smackdown on these guys because all of them are the religious gurus and Jesus turns around and he says, I want you to know, I see more faith in this pagan worshiping, blood-ridden stranger from Rome than I do of any of you guys. Do you ever wonder why the Pharisees hated him? Because Jesus basically turned around and went, loser. This guy gets it. You don't get it. Anywhere in Israel. And these guys have got to be going, oh my gosh. And they're smiling going, thank you for saying that. That's where that conviction comes in. And then look at this. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Whose authority do you live under? I'm going to tell you very simply that you live under one of two authorities. Either the Lord is authority over your life or not. And if he's not, then guess who's under, whose authority you're living under? Yourself. You're making the calls. You're doing these things. And how many of you, the older you get, realize that you are ill-prepared to handle what this world is dishing out? Because we have spiritual struggles going on in this world, and we're trying to combat spiritual struggles with like a hammer. It's like trying to swat mosquitoes with a hammer. Good luck. The end result is somebody's going to get hurt, and it's probably not the mosquitoes. So, how do you know if the Lord has authority over your life? Well, you can analyze certain things with your life. Does the Lord have authority over your time? How do you spend your time? Have you ever sat down for one week and graphed out how you use your time? It's amazing. It's amazing how much time disappears, and we don't even know what we've accomplished. There are times where I come home, and Pam will say, Hey, how was your day? Oh, it was wonderful. What'd you do? Uh, well, I, I had an email, and then I talked on the phone, and then um, I answered a few text messages, and then I did. And then I started realizing, did I do anything that matters for the kingdom? Did I do anything that matters for push, pushing how God designed me and desires me to live, have I done anything to nurture that? Does God have authority over your time? Does God have authority over your talents? Whatever abilities God has given you, he's given them to you for two reasons. Number one is to somehow make it in this world. Number two is to bring glory to him. I saw a really cool video the other day. And it was this guy, and I could tell he was Scottish soccer player because when they just talk, they sound like William Wallace. It's just fantastic. And he was mic'd up during a game, and I don't even know how they do that because I, I would never want to run around on a soccer field with a microphone on me. But he made this play in this game, and his team scored. And everyone was like hugging him and hugging him and hugging him, and he he stopped and he went like this and he went 
Guys, and all things give glory to the Lord. We win, we give glory. We lose, we give glory. And he goes, Lord, thank you for this moment with these men that we could turn and stop and praise you. This is like, the game is happening. Like, they're trying to bring the ball back and start the game back up, and he's giving glory to God. And I thought, you know what? That's a guy whose talent is under the authority of the king. And, I, and you know what? Listen, I played competitively for a long time. I don't know that I ever did that. When I made a good play, I wanted to make sure everybody knew I made a good play. Because whose authority was I living under? Eric's authority. I was a fool. Does the Lord have authority over your money? Billy Graham Foundation did this study. They said that the average Christian ties 3%. 3%. One of the things I've always been challenged is, like, listen, I've been in ministry, our, Pam and I have been in it for our whole lives, and finances have always been a struggle. And I remember somebody saying to somebody, listen, I don't know that I can give. I just don't know that I can do it. And I remember this guy said to me, Eric, can you start somewhere? What if you gave $5 a week? Can you come up with $5? Five bucks. But I did it. And the funny thing is, is now I look at what we give, and I say to Pam, you know, this really doesn't make sense. But it's because we decided that we were going to live under his authority. And I'm convinced that one reason I don't see God move more in my life is because every now and then I take the authority steering wheel from God. How many people do that? How many people, God's driving the car, but you're, you don't even want to control the radio anymore. You want to start controlling the shifter and everything else, right? And here's the thing about God. God loves you so much that he'll go, all right, Eric, you grab the wheel. Last time he did this, we were in the ditch, but all right. I got it, Lord. Oh, Lord, can you help me get out of the ditch? Yep, get out of the ditch. A few miles later, back in the ditch. I am ill-equipped to have authority over my life. And as soon as I just say, all right, Lord, you know what? I'm just going to give glory to you with my time. I'm going to give glory to you with my talents. I'm going to give glory to you with my, with my money. I'm going to live under your authority. Then I think God goes, okay, we, we can go places. And guess what, Eric? Some of the places we'll go you might not want to go, but other places we're going to go you don't even know about, and they're awesome. So I'm going to take you there. Let's finish up. Three for the road, number three, living under compassion and authority. So he heals this centurion servant. And guys, I think, listen, even the Jews have to be happy at this point. The Romans are happy. Everybody's happy. Everyone's rejoicing. And here they go. They're on their journey. But let me tell you something. This is what I told you. Jesus is going to take you places where sometimes you're going to go, I don't know if I want to go here. Because look where we end up. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. It says, now it happened that day, the day after, that they went into a city called Nan. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when they came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. So, cities walled. Narrow gate going in, narrow gate going out. And here come two incredibly diverse, different emotion-driven crowds. 
and they're gonna come together. There's a reason at sporting events, like when, when, when we go to Chase's games in the fall in soccer, there's a reason that there's, this is where this team sits, and this is where this team sits. You know, sports mom, you know how that goes. Why do they sit them different? Because you sit them together, it just starts going. But here come these two crowds, and they're gonna intertwine, and they're gonna mix. See, life and death are realities that live very, very close to all of us, and they come out at any moment. And here comes this dead man being brought out. It's his son. What's every parent's worst nightmare? They don't want to bury their child. It's not how it should be. Everyone feels that way. And here's these two contrasting crowds, and they're coming in and they're coming out. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. See, this woman's under a double whammy here. See, in that culture, often when a husband died, they would think it's because of something with the woman. And if her husband died, it was up to her son to take care of her. But now with her son gone, not only has she had the heartbreak of losing, losing her husband, the heartbreak of losing her son, but now she's going to say, what's going to happen to me? I become a beggar. I have nothing. I have no way to take care of myself. And in the dating world, she would be broken goods. No man's going to get involved with her. So her despair is very deep. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now listen, maybe there's other things in the Bible like this, but here's another strange one about this. I don't, the woman isn't looking for Jesus. I don't even know that she knows who Jesus is. I know that she is in the thrones of despair, in the thrones of mourning, and all of a sudden somebody comes up to her and says, do not weep. How many of you have been in the depths of something very, very awful in your life and had some very good-willing and good-meaning Christian say something really stupid like, oh, it's okay. No, it's not okay. This isn't okay. Don't ever say that. The only one who can say that is the one who hung on the cross and rose a few days later. Do not weep. Then he came and he touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still. Guys, I can't help but, like, sometimes I read stuff and I read into it, but somewhere in this crowd, I just wonder if that centurion's roaming around. I didn't mean that Roman, roaming around. If he's somewhere, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, you guys got to watch this. I know about this guy. None of these people know who he is, but I do. Watch this. Ooh, he just touched a coffin. That makes you ceremonial unclean for seven days. And he doesn't even know this guy in the centurion. He's going, shh, shut up. Watch, watch. He carried it and he stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. You know, one of the things I've heard people say to me, they'll say, Eric, I don't believe any of the miracles in the Bible. Like, I believe that Jesus lived but I don't believe any of these miracles. I said, then you're better off just telling people you don't believe the Bible. Because the end result is, 
No centurion is going to put his neck out on the line if he doesn't think this Jesus is real. And the disciples, if Jesus died and they hit his body, or I've heard all these kind of conspiracy things and everything like that, how many people would die for a known lie? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. No way. And Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, I don't know, but normally when they would carry a coffin, they would carry it up on their shoulders, and the top of the coffin is open. I'm going to tell you this, that if I was carrying the coffin and the dude sat up in the coffin, I'm sorry, but I'm dropping the coffin and running. Because that, that's definitely on my freak meter. Like, that's, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. But Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, what I love about this is who knows if any of these people know who Jesus is. So he who was dead <laughs> sat up and began to speak. Oh, Joanne, I heard you went to that funeral this morning. It must have been so sad. How was it? Really different than any funeral I've ever been to. Actually, there he is walking down the road. How would you like to be the people later who bump into him and go, I, I heard a rumor that you were dead. It's just crazy, but... He sat up and began to speak. And what did he speak? I always tell people, I don't know for sure, but I think he said what Paul mentioned in Colossians. That in all things, what? Christ may have supremacy. And I think this guy sat up and he looked around and he saw his mom and he saw his friends and he saw people he knew. And then he looked over and he went, you. You. I know who you are. You have authority here, but I died, and you have authority there. And that's why I'm here. And then this beautiful, beautiful moment. So he, sat, so he was dead, sat up, and began to speak, and then I love this verse. And this is where, like, the compassion of Jesus, just, it just bursts. It says, and he presented him to his mother. I can say this because Austin and Brigitte are out teaching that lesson, so I'll embarrass them both. They got married a few weeks ago, and there's this moment, right? I've done a lot of weddings, but doing a wedding for your son is really something else. And so I'm up there, here's Austin, here's Jack, here's Chase, nieces, everybody's there, the, the gang is there. But there's this moment and everyone who's ever been to a wedding knows what this moment is. Brigida came up these stairs, and then you can't really see her, and she comes down this side aisle, and then she squares up and faces Austin. How many people know that moment? And she faces Austin, and I look at my son's face. The thing is, I literally thought, he's going to faint. <laughs> he's going down. Because Austin, his complete face went kind of pale, and he locked in on this girl, and I could tell, I literally thought, listen, I'm no PhD, but I'm telling you, this kid loves this girl. And Brigitte's face literally is the bride walking down the aisle. If she could spontaneously combust into that campfire you're talking about Wednesday, she could have. Like, she just glowed coming down this aisle. And I thought, 
I literally thought to myself, you know what? When Jesus gets this boy down and he hugs him, and I guarantee that they hugged, why? Because when you realize that he who has authority and supremacy here also has authority and supremacy here, and that he loves you and he cares for you, you hug him, and then he turns around and goes, let's go back to your mom. And he walks this boy back to his mom, and they lock eyes. I remember when every one of my kids were born, and I remember when they gave birth and they put them up and they put them on Pam's chest and she held them. And even though birth is not as glorious, you know, it's kind of all this stuff coming all over the place and everything like that, it doesn't matter. She just loves them. Her eyes lock in on them. Their eyes connect. She holds them close. You just love them. And I think this mom's going... I saw, when I saw you for the first time, I loved you. I've loved you every day of your life. I've lost you. And now I have you back. And she just hugged him and loved him. And then I love how this ends. Verse 16. Then fear came upon all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. See, this is the thing. I think everybody is starting to put this together, and the Roman centurions in the back row going, guys, I told you so. He's the son of David. He's from Bethlehem. Put your own scriptures together. God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all of Judea and all the surrounding region. And you know what the beautiful thing is? It didn't just go around the surrounding region from the Jewish nation. I guarantee it floated around the Roman nation. And I guarantee that there were people who went to that centurion and said, did I hear that you were like following around some Jewish preacher guy? Yeah. He saved my servant. Well, where is he now? I don't know. He just raised some kid from the dead. What? Yes. Who is he? One who lives under authority. Let's make this hit home. Living under compassion and authority. You know, I'm convinced that if we understood the Lord's authority and the Lord's position and our position, we would live differently. Whatever you believe the Lord's authority is, and whatever you believe his position is, you would live different according to that. If you believe he's powerless, if you believe he can't really do anything, then guess what? You'll live that way. But if you believe that he just says the word and a a servant is healed, then you'll live that way. If you believe that he has the power over life and death, which Julie Sapp has been living out before us over these last few years, then you'll live that way. You'll live to whatever you believe Jesus is. Some people just think it's a curse word, and that's how they live it. But I'm going to challenge you this morning. You know, the centurion needed Jesus, and he sought after him. And he broke a lot of social norms there. And he called himself unworthy. He humbled himself. He needed Jesus. The widow also needed Jesus. And he found her. I don't even think the widow knew what she was looking for. 
I don't think the widow even knew who Jesus was. But Jesus found her. And maybe today you need Jesus and you're seeking him. Maybe today Jesus has found you. A friend of mine told me, he said, you know, Eric, the two greatest games ever played were both invented in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve played a game called hide and seek. And they hid. And the Lord sought them. He said, then Jesus started a new game. Follow the leader. And what does the leader do? He finds those that are lost. And he brings them back in. I want the worship team to come forward. But before they come forward, I, I want to pray. And here's what I want to pray. Today, if you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, Eric? Um, I've been seeking the Lord, and I feel like the Lord has really caught me. And I'm going to pursue that. Then God be the glory. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I don't even know what I was looking for, but it found me. He found me. When I was a teenager, I sat in a talk, and I was a talk I had heard before. Oh, you're a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for you. I heard it a million times, and all of a sudden, I'm telling you, whatever it was, Jesus found me that day. Because it was over with, and I turned to my friend. I said, you know, he's talking about us. And he said, so what? And I went, no, it's a big what. And I received Christ that night. Maybe you're seeking him. Maybe he's seeking you. But the end result is, as I think we need to do what both of them did. The Roman centurion acknowledged Jesus Christ and God moved powerfully in his life. And I guarantee that when that young man got down and he hugged at Jesus and he hugged his mom, that I think that that woman's life was forever changed. And I don't mean just because her son was back, because guess what? He was going to die again and so would she. But the difference is, this time they would die and they would have a relationship with the one who has authority on this end of the world and this end of the world. And that's the difference. So I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to say a prayer that you can repeat silently. And then I'm going to ask you a bold question. But let's bow our heads. Dear Holy Father, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that maybe they're the centurion and they're seeking after you and they are meeting up with you right now, Lord, that they would become your child. Lord, I pray that there's anyone here who is like this widow who maybe she wasn't looking for you, but you found her. Lord, maybe that's them today. Lord, if there's anyone here, it says in the gospel that if anyone would just admit that they have sinned and believe in Jesus Christ and commit their life, that they go from lost to being found. Lord, why would we want to live being lost when we can be found? Why would we want to live as like a stepchild when we can be a son or daughter of the king? And so, Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone who wants to receive Jesus Christ, that they would do business in their heart with you right now. Because, Lord, here's the thing. The day before this young man died, I don't think this woman thought, tomorrow my son will die. Death and life exist very close to one another. And death comes quickly sometimes. And Lord, I don't say this to give people fear. I say it, Lord, because it's a conviction of truth. But the compassion is, 
that you love them, you care for them, you died on the cross for them. So Lord, if there's anyone who would want to receive Christ, I'll leave it quiet for a second. I pray that they would pray this, Lord, in their heart to you today. Lord, we thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, the worship team can come up.